her face of desperation, I will never forget. Kim's father died on December 14, 1988, the very day that she took her last final exam at the University of Maryland. She came in the house and she said, I'm done. Her, his last words to her, fantastic, sweetheart, congratulations, I'm going for a run. Died of a heart attack 35 minutes later. His mom, Doobie, Doobie Cordova, correctly pronounced Cordova. They were Spanish, not Mexican, they would tell you. Because in 1950s Colorado, to be a migrant Mexican or a minority was not a popular thing. So Charlie changed his name from Carlos to Charlie. Charlie was the third born of her sons. He'd gone farther in education, got his doctorate in education, worked for the United States Department of Education, and at 47 years of age, died. I'll never forget Grandma Doobie's face. It was as if someone had punched her in the stomach as she had lost what she called her baby boy. It was an awful moment for our family because not only was it awful for Kim's mom, Carol, and we didn't know how we were going to survive as a family, quite honestly. But Carol's sorrow and her grief and Kim's and her sister's grief and my grief as kind of the man of the family now was nothing compared to the mourning of a mother for her son. We're all exposed to death sooner or later. Whenever we witness anyone's death, we're reminded of our own inevitable, certain cessation of life, for we will all die. But there's something about the death of a child. Now last week in our readings, we saw the faith of the centurion. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, you will find today's passage in the back of your bulletin. Last week we heard the story of the centurion and the healing of the centurion's servant. And what it means to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. We learned from the, as the centurion demonstrated, true faith is when you once realize that you are more wicked than you ever dared to dream, but yet in Jesus you are more loved than you ever imagined. And that's exactly what he recognizes. He was this humble centurion. As opposed to the elders who came to Jesus and said, He deserves you to do this for him, Lord. Because that was what they believed. You know, if, if you do all the right things, God, you are deserving of God's favor. You know, if you memorize enough scripture, if you go to church enough, if you give enough money, whatever you put on the end of that sentence... If it's meritorious for you, that's an elder faith. And we learned last week, oh no. It's a humble faith that says, I am not worthy, O Lord, to come to you. And some translations translate from the centurion to the widow in Maine as the next day. Our verse 1 says, 
soon afterward. It can be translated both. Both are faithful. But what we see today is the mother who has a dead son, which is one of the greatest agonies of life. It's the burying of oneself. It's the death of a future. And it's a burden that all parents fear and some of you have endured. And such is the setting for today's passion passage. And what we see in this passage is three great truths for us as God's people as we transi- tra- transition ten minutes west into a new location beginning next week. We see that God sees us in our desperation. We see that God has compassion in our desperation. And that God meets our needs in the midst of our desperation, no matter what the levels are. Number one, God sees. Number two, God has compassion. And three, God meets our needs. So let's look at this, shall we? Verse 11 of chapter 7. God sees us in our times of desperation, no matter what level of desperation it is. Verse 11 says, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples with a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, verse 13, we're going to stop right there. Like last week, this is another sad scene. Last week we had a centurion servant who was sick and near of death. This week, there is death. Going to sleep that night for her, I'm sure she had dread of the morning before her. Some of us know what that's like when you know the next day you're going to bury your loved one. If you slept well that night, it's probably because you took something that the doctor prescribed for you. He kindly gave it to you. And if you didn't take something or you refused to take it, you probably tossed and turned in bed. And as the sun rises in the morning, the dread is still there. The small cluster of people come to your door with the sound of flutes and cymbals because professional mourners in the ancient world were to help you in your grief. That's what they were. You would hire them. And the sound of their instruments would sound to you, it's time for me to lay my son to rest. She's already a widow, and now she's childless. And in a day where there are no 401ks, there's no pensions, there's no social security, there's no male provider, there's no possibility of a living for her. She's beyond the childbearing years, no male provider or protector. She is flat out hopeless unless something dramatic occurs. This little town of Nain is six miles to the southeast of Nazareth. It's a day's journey by foot from Capernaum where we were with the centurion. So that's why some translations say the next day. Because it would have been about a day walk. Archaeologists, interestingly enough, have discovered tombs outside of Nain. And they uncovered a path out of the eastern gate. Which more than likely was the path this funeral procession was walking. And so there she is, as is the ancient church tradition that the, the family leads the way. And she's the only one. So it's the widow, 
Behind her, the crowd carrying the body of her dead son. And I want you to notice in this passage, look down at verse 12. The emphasis is not on the dead young man. It's on the mother. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her. Notice that. The man's death is almost in this text secondary to the state of her mother, of his mother. She is the embodiment of Jesus' prayer quoted from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. When he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has proclaimed me to be proclaimed good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty the oppressed. I can think of no one more oppressed than this woman. I can think of no one more captive than her. And she is poor. And she needs good news. I can think of no other person in the world who is more needing of the gospel than this widow, an obvious recipient of the gospel. For this is the worst day of her life. She has no future. And all the people in the crowd cannot mitigate the depth of her maternal sorrow. She's the epitome of sadness and loneliness. And they're simply here to support her through her grief. Now there are some gathered here today, I'm sure, in this congregation have come this morning thinking that nobody around you knows the desperation that you are currently enduring. You've come to our corporate worship this morning thinking that no one in the world either really knows you, understands you, or is able to help you in any way. And there's a real sadness in your spirit, a loneliness, a forlornness that is almost paralyzing to the very core of your being. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus sees you. He sees you in your sorrow. He sees you in your desperation. And he cares. And I want you to notice that, that nobody makes a request of Jesus in this passage. He just sees and acts. Because that's who he is. He's the God who takes initiative. So that's the first point. Jesus sees you and understands. No matter the level of your desperation. He understands it. He gets it. Secondly, he's the one who has compassion. Verse 13b, he saw and he had compassion on her. You've heard me talk about this word often here. This great Greek word. It's the strongest word possible to describe the type of compassion that Jesus had for her. It's the Greek word splagizomai. I'm sorry if I spit on the first row. Splagizomai. <laughs> All right? It refers to the insides, the heart, the liver, the lungs. It is when your guts ache like Grandma Doobie. She comes through the door December 20th and goes, My boy, my boy is dead. He was 47. But she, he, Charlie was her boy. That's the type of compassion which Jesus has for us 
in our desperation. It's splagidzomai. It's an emotion that has a visceral effect. The idea is to yearn with a tender mercy, an affection, sympathy, and compassion. It's the deepest movement of emotion that we are capable of as human beings. Now, we can't have the type of emotion that Jesus has. He is God, after all, right? He's sinless, selfless. We must distinguish between the two because he's rooted in his sinless nature and selflessness. And we must come to the grips with the fact that our sinfulness and selfishness and self-focus at times often inhibit our ability to care. Kent Hughes puts it this way, Jesus' sinless self-forgetfulness allowed the full exercise of his sympathy and pity on her. In other words, Jesus has the capacity to care when others don't. When you don't. Jesus has the capacity for concern and compassion with your heart when you're spiritually dry, when you're spiritually empty, and you don't feel anything. When you've cried so much, you can't even cry anymore. Jesus is there with splagidzomai. There's a great hymn that the Gettys have written called the Compassion Hymn. This is the love of God for you and me. We stood beneath the cross of Calvary and gazed upon your face at the thorns of oppression and the words of disgrace. For surely you have borne our suffering and carried our grief as you pardoned the scoffer and showed grace to the thief. The chorus goes, What boundless love, what fathomless grace you have shown us, O God of compassion. Each day we live an offering of prey as we show to the world your compassion, your splagidzomai. My friends, nobody probably does know your desperate problems that you're going through right now. There's that great Negro spiritual, nobody knows. Bugs Bunny used to sing that all the time. You remember that? He would get in jail. Elmer would have him in jail, and he'd be singing, nobody knows. That's how I learned that, because Episcopalians didn't sing that hymn, right? But the black culture did. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That's true. He not only sees it, he weeps with you and cares for you. Next, we see that he's the one who meets our need, verse 14. And then he said to her, do not weep. I want to pause there for a second. I want you to imagine you're the the widow. You've never seen Jesus. You may have never even heard of Jesus. And this traveling rabbi is coming into town with his posse. And he says, don't weep. Really? Really? You don't want me to weep? Who are you? But she doesn't say that, does she? Verse 14, Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. See, the point I'm making here is that God meets our need. And notice, yes, the young man was resurrected, but what does Jesus do? He gives him to his mother. Why? To meet her need. It's beautiful. It's as if he gets up and says, Son, take care of your mom. She needs you right now. 
That's the greater need here. It's that he was probably fine in glory. We hear the stories, you know. I wonder what it was like for Lazarus, right? You know, before Jesus raised him, Lazarus was probably in the Father's presence, enjoying eternity, when all of a sudden God from earth says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was probably thinking, really? I got to go back now? Funerals are for the living, not the dead. We do not weep for them. We weep for us. She had the greater need. And so what does Jesus do? He gives him to his mother. It's beautiful. And notice, when Jesus comes up and touches the beer, the beer is simply a wooden open coffin. You still see them in the East today. You know, they will carry the dead with an open coffin as they mourn through the streets. I think it's important for us to know they stopped. Of course they stopped because it was to make a person unclean if they touched a coffin. You don't enter the house of a pagan like last week. You don't, you don't do that. That makes you unclean. Well, Jesus didn't care. He reached up and touched the beer. And so they stopped. Of course they stopped. They were going, what's going on here? And next thing they know, the coffin starts to move. Because all he had to say was, arise. And it doesn't stop there. The crowd's reaction is quite appropriate. Verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report spread about him through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You see, as he was given to his mother, a great fear came upon them. Fear meaning, this is different. We've never seen this before. All right, It's not just a frightening movie we're talking about here. It's an encounter with the living God, and when we do so, it's a little scary. But it's not just that. That fear quickly turns to excitement. That a great prophet has risen among us. That word prophet is referring back to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17. What did Elijah do for that widow whose son had died? He stretches out upon the son, the son three times and begs God to raise him from the dead. And they're remembering that story. A great prophet, Elijah, has come back, they're thinking. And then they quote from Zechariah, God has visited his people. They were, they were ascribing such a title to him was the best that they could do without further revelation. They, they were doing well here. The fear quickly turned to excitement, just like the moment you first came to the knowledge of who God is, and you had to respond. And when you gave your life to Jesus, there was great excitement, because I'm welcomed in despite all my baggage and sinfulness. Because this Jesus was much more than a great prophet, wasn't he? But ascribing such a title to him was the best that they could do. But such a spontaneous chorus of realization that the Messianic times had come upon him. As they quote the passage from Zechariah 1. So Jesus had come with Elijah-like power. But with one huge difference. He didn't have to stretch out three times on the sun. He just had to say, arise. Got up. See, God meets our needs the way he meets them. 
Her greatest need was she needed this son. So he read him. He raised him. I wonder what your response to this is this morning. To the fact that he is seeing you in your desperation. The fact that he cares about your desperation. He wants to meet your needs. You see, there truly is no hopeless situation in Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. We're here to celebrate continually what the Lord's done in our lives these past four and a half years as a community at Christ Church. As we celebrate the third Sunday of Pentecost with the widow of Nain and what's happened in her life. We're also here to celebrate our graduates. So for our young people and our graduates, I think the message truly is, dear graduates, God has great plans for you. And there will be days of highs and lows where God sees you. There will be times of desperation where you don't think you can pull through. He loves you. And you can know that upon his work upon the cross. I think that message is good for us adults too, amen. See, the reality is, he does see. And there's no hopeless situation in Jesus Christ. We just need to turn to him and call out to him with all of our life. And remember, this is tied together with the centurion story. Because the previous day, more than likely, Jesus had just dealt with the elder type of faith, which is rampant in our culture, right? The, the spiritual but not religious person that I talk to is really nothing more than reworked goods, works, righteousness. Thinking, well, surely God, you know, counts this. I'm worthy for this reason. You're missing the point. You're on a slow-turning mouse wheel, if that's what you're on. Get off of it. And get on the gospel. Dump it all and let's lay it all on the cross. Because the best stories have moments of desperation, don't they? I was watching Lewis's great, I read the book when I was a younger man, but I was watching the movie. And this, this scene is not in the book, but you can imagine Lewis would approve. Right before the battle, my favorite scene in that whole movie, the music is starting to, to drum up. And then they show the griffin. If you don't know ancient mythology, a griffin is a flying bird with a head like a falcon, the, the wings of a falcon, and the body of a lion. They're massive animals. And this griffin is coming back from a scouting assignment. And he's flying over. And he comes back flying over Aslan's army. And he lands next to King Peter. And he's breathing heavy. And he says, like only a great English accent can say, they come, your highness, in numbers far greater than our own. And I thought, me and Kimmy always look at one another. Why? Why do they always have to outnumber the good guys? I hate it. Because they're getting slaughtered. And it seems absolutely hopeless every time. And that's how it's going, right? The battle starts and Peter looks at his centurion and says, Are you with me? Because I need you. He says, To the death, your highness. 
And they charge, and this great battle starts, and they're getting killed. The white witch turning everybody to stone with her wand. Even poor Edmund, he breaks the wand, and he gets stabbed by her. He's not going to make it. No way! We're all going, no way! And Peter's fighting, and then in the background, what do you hear? In the distance, Aslan's roar. And Aslan comes with his reinforcements, and he just maims the witch, all gory and slaughtery and blood flowing out of his mouth. It's awesome! Got nothing on Band of Brothers, man. It's phenomenal. Why is it that it's always a desperate situation before the guy in the white hat comes? Because in the midst of our desperation, we have to remember that in Christ, there's strength in our weakness. And it's our weakness that shows that ourselves and our neighbors, Jesus is real. It's true. And as Peter's army is about to be defeated, Aslan comes to the rescue. My friends, there will come a day when we will see our loved ones once again when the true king returns. All who have placed their trust in Jesus and we will see them whole, better than ever before, face to face with our risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. We will hear his voice and say, get up, Wes. Get up, Charlie. Get up, Carol. It's resurrection day. I see you, I care for you, I am with you, and I will meet your needs. He's met our needs, corporately, has he not? For the past four and a half years, we have learned what it means to depend upon him, rather than ourselves and our own ingenuity. We have learned to be a people of prayer like never before. We didn't pray like this four and a half years ago. We didn't. I got witnesses, all right? We didn't pray like we do now. We're learning to be a people of prayer and depend upon him more. We're learning what it means to be a people of the word, not our own earthly opinions, because they only go so far. My friends, he sees. He cares. He will meet our needs. And we will hear his voice. We're in the battle now. But one day we're going to hear that victory roar. He'll say, get up. And we'll feast forever with him. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day and for this widow, which reminds us to look to you. That you have the right to intervene in our lives. And you see us. And you have compassion on us like none other. We can't even have that compassion with with one another, but you can and you do, Lord. Ultimately, in the person and work of Jesus, we thank you that you are the God of compassion. Lord, may we have such compassion by the power of your Holy Spirit to one another and to our neighbors as you call us forth as a people. And that as we look for that day when we will hear you say, get up, may we rejoice and have a peace that none other because of such compassion and seeing that you have for us as you meet our needs day by day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now let us stand and pronounce the words of our faith and the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in